Hey, deserving listeners, today's episode is about imaginary friends. But before we get into the topic, I want to give the background of this episode. So a while back, a radio show reached out to me, a radio show called Haunted Talks, the official podcast of the Haunted Walk. Well, they said it was a radio show. I'm pretty sure it was a radio show and a podcast. Anyway, it's called Haunted Talks. And they reached out to me and they wanted me to be on their show to provide an expert opinion about imaginary friends. And I said, sure. Uh, what do you want to talk about? And, and he's like, well, you know, we want to talk about how uh, is it? Are they ghosts or what? This kind of thing. And I was like, what? What do you mean? He's like, well, uh, you know, because sometimes imaginary friends, you know, they might be ghosts. Some people are worried about that. And I and I said, oh, well, you don't want me on your show because I'm going to tear down that whole argument. One, we don't need to invoke fictional storylines into our real life to explain, you know, a real phenomenon. Uh, so I'm not going to support that idea that they're ghosts. And two, to propose such an idea is damaging to children uh, and parents. You have parents walking around, if they listen to your show and, and you're saying that they're going that, that that their kids are possessed or that they that they're seeing a ghost one you're going to freak the parents out in a unnecessary way and the parents might do something to the kids to shame them or to make them feel like like it is a ghost and that would be terrifying to a kid imaginary friends are totally normal and most kids have them and we need to we don't need to mess with that now if you want to make a movie about an imaginary friend that's a ghost that's fine you know horror movies but this is reality we're talking about here we can't be you know telling people ideas like that now i didn't say it like this i said it in a much nicer way <laughs> i think i said something like you don't want me on your show because i i'm going to argue the science and i'm going to talk about how it's normal and i'm not going to support the idea that it's ghosts so you probably don't want me on your show and I thought that would be that. But he got back to me and he was like, no, 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 I do want you on the show. And I was like, huh, well, that's strange. Okay. Uh, you know, dig your own grave because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to basically uh, refute probably the entire thesis of the episode. But all right, that's fine. Um, back when I used to reach out to people to be on the show, when it was harder to get people on my podcast – uh, it was such a bummer when people would turn me down. And so I tend to agree to these kinds of things. You know, it's like, hey, it's just 15 minutes of my life. No big deal. Anyway, so it came time for the interview and we talked for about 15, 20 minutes. I thought it went well. And I, you know, really made sure to get across the idea that it's normal, that most kids have it, that there's a lot of benefits to having a, an imaginary friend that is found in the data. Uh, kids with imaginary friends, uh, it, it's hard to know exactly, but it looks like having an imaginary friend actually helps in development. Um, and uh, I also wanted to get across the idea that that equating imaginary friends with ghosts and ghouls and fictionalized story horror movie elements is going to cause harm. And so I, so I felt like I did that. I felt like I diplomatically got all those things out. And when he asked me about ghosts and ghouls, I I kind of just responded in a way that didn't insult him, but didn't also go along with the premise. And after I got off the phone, I thought, okay, that went well. And then I said, um, you know, let me know when the the show airs. And so I listened to the show, and this is maybe the first time this has ever happened to me, but I know it happens to other expert. Uh, other experts when they're interviewed for documentaries and TV shows is that 
when you do the interview, they will take out little snippets and kind of take it out of context. Now, I'm not accusing them of doing this, but what they didn't do is they didn't, I thought they would air my entire, my entire interview, which is naive, of course. Um, and actually, this has happened to me before, mainly on TV. Like, I'll never forget one time I was interviewed for almost an hour for this uh, local news show. And I think literally five seconds, uh, what, maybe 10, was used on the show. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what a complete waste of time. I mean, what was I, I researched all this stuff and I spent all this time. And, and actually it was on Christmas Eve day, which is a really big day for me and my family. They all come over to my house. And so I remember I was like cooking and cleaning and all these things in the middle of the day, this news crew comes over to my house and is filming me in my living room. And I'm like, okay, we got to get out of here. And an hour of my time was wasted only for 10 seconds of, of footage that they used on, on, the, on, the, on the TV show. Anyway, so I knew that they would do that, but I just kind of want to provide, I, I want to present you with the interview that I did in its entirety. And then we'll, we'll just, you know, sort of listen to that. And then, um, then we'll listen to the actual show. And I didn't include the entire show, but um, I sort of condensed it a little bit, but then you, you kind of hear the difference, you know, how someone can take an interview with me and while not, you know, uh, lying about what I said, sort of spin it in a way that makes it seem to fit their agenda. Now, I will credit them. They did um, have me sort of uh, talking at the end of the episode about how it's normal and that um, you shouldn't, uh, you know, propagate the idea that imaginary friends are evil or, you know, anything like that. But I just thought it was an interesting kind of contrast because I'm, I'm listening to the, the actual radio broadcast and I'm like, huh, I don't know if this was the tone I was intending to come across. Um, so let's, let's get into that. So let's listen just to the raw interview first here. So to talk about imaginary companions is the, the research term. Imaginary friends are underneath that umbrella. So in the research, they'll uh, both look at imaginary friends, which most of us understand you have a five-year-old who has a friend that they talk to, or maybe it's like an, an older brother imaginary friend. But then we also include imaginary companions like stuffed animals, any imaginary entity um, that can be a, a human imaginary friend or a animal. The culture of, of imaginary friends on the internet in particular is that how scary uh, they are. Um, you know, like one um, article that I found on Google was 15 incredibly creepy but true stories about imaginary friends. Um, another one uh, here is 15 terrified parents describe their child's disturbing imaginary friends. If I'm a parent and my kid has an imaginary friend and I go to the internet and I come across these articles, it's going to freak me out. I'm going to think that my kid is disturbed or red rum is going to happen or something from The Shining and kind of shames children on some level. It's like it makes kids a very, what I, you know, just a spoiler alert, most children have imaginary friends and the vast majority of those imaginary companions are not only benign, but even helpful. It's a normal part of, of growing up. And so to have these notions around like they're somehow devil children or they're possessed or something is, I don't know. It just, it feels like it shames children and uh, keeps it in the sort of pathology uh, realm. 
to some extent, our movies aren't helping, you know, like The Shining with Red Rum, Red Rum, Red Rum. I mean, I love The Shining. It's one of my favorite movies. But there, there's I don't know if that's where it began in our culture to associate imaginary companions with um, being possessed or something. Uh, the Conjuring, Amityville Horror, Castaway with uh, with um, Tom Hanks and Wilson. You know, one could say that uh, that's uh, Castaway is like a really good example of a, a normal or accurate pre- presentation of a imaginary friend, and and why? Because when children uh, are alone, which you know they can be alone sometimes, just for various reasons. There, there seems to be this uh, natural compulsion to, and to have friends and to have conversations. And when they're left alone, and ki- kids have, you know, a lot of creativity and they, they, they're used to pretending, it's, it makes total sense to just make up a friend, even if it's just temporary. You know, you'll if you've hung around with kids, you'll see if you leave your four-year-old in the corner playing with his Legos, eventually, you know, he'll just start talking. <laughs> you know, he'll. Yeah, you know, pretending and, and it, it's not a it's not a huge leap to just create this 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 like personality. Full disclosure, I had imaginary friends when I was a kid. <laughs> I had three imaginary friends, uh Jeff, Gigi, and I can't remember this the third one, but I remember having full conversations with them and um they were, you know, it was very pretty temporary. I think it was just for a couple of years, maybe but yeah, so prevalence in the United States, uh, there's about two-thirds to three-fourths of children um, have had an imaginary companion, and it usually starts around the age of four because that's when children develop a theory of mind, which is the notion or the developmental phase in which humans develop this ability to really understand that um, other people have a mind. You know, it, it's not a it's not something we're born with through uh, age and through uh, interaction with other people. This idea that like my feelings aren't your feelings and my thoughts aren't your thoughts. Um, this notion of like, oh, so you have this whole other perspective and emotional experience, and, and it's sort of unknown to me. Um, as they develop that notion of that separation, that's when they also begin to uh, create imaginary companions. Uh, there are plenty of, of middle school age kids who have imaginary companions. Um, it might seem wrong or pathological or something. It's not. Uh, research has found that none of these things are associated with with bad things. I mean, occasionally you'll have a kid who's psychotic and um, it generally has psychopathology, but that's extremely rare. If anything, there's there's a lot of good things that happen from these, according to the research. And I would have thought this before I looked at the research that, you know, kids with imaginary companions, they're probably more isolated. They're probably more shy. They keep to themselves. They're in their own world. But it's actually the opposite. Kids with imaginary companions tend to be less shy. They engage in more laughing with peers and more smiling with peers. They're better able to empathize with other people. Um, There's really no evidence that having an, an imaginary companion leads to emotional difficulties. Some studies even show it suggests higher, higher intelligence, uh, more creative kids are likely to have an imaginary companion, or does the imaginary companion actually lead to higher intelligence and, and greater creativity and better, better emotional lives? It seems to me, and it, you know, if I had any advice to parents, is to 
revel and celebrate the fact that your kid has an imaginary companion. It's totally normal. It's nothing to worry about. Um, and might even, you know, give you a glimpse into your child's emotional life. You know, once, once you, the, the sort of interactions that they have with that um, imaginary companion might, might tell you something about the emotional life. Now, I will say that there are very rare um, instances where these imaginary companions are not so great. Um, uh, about 3%, according to research, of imaginary companions were categorized as enemies, uh, meaning that they were frightening or, or mean in some way. Um, so that does happen. And in those cases, of course, we want to try to help kids with that. So 3%, you know, that's, that's something to, to mention, but extremely rare. So if, if your kid has an imaginary companion, just, you know, just find out, you know, what is, what is your imagine? What does she do? What does she, what does she like to do? What does she ever tell you to do anything bad? And so, but you know, it's, it's usually pretty rare. It's an extremely interesting topic. I don't recall myself having an imaginary friend, but I imagine some of us may forget that we had them at one point. So I'm very, because I don't remember the experience, I'm very curious if you could shed any insight on the perception of the child, if we're talking about uh, children's imaginary companions in particular, how are they perceiving that that companion? Are some of them seeing an actual uh, physical kind of representation in front of them? Is it kind of a, a voice in their head? What are the different ways they kind of uh, interact uh, or perceive their imaginary companions? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, sometimes it is like a, an imaginary hologram or something. Other times, like with me, it was, I could both kind of see them, but I actually would talk for them. Other times, like I said, it can be a stuffed animal. And so it is a real object. It's right in front of you, but the real object has thoughts and feelings and either communicates telepathically or actually opens their mouth. And what occurs, I mean, I assume it is the case that the child is the one who takes the initiative to stop referring to the imaginary companion. What is happening in their psychological development where they might move from having an imaginary companion to, to not? Yeah, it's a good question. It's unknown um, as to why it's hard. It would be hard thing to study. I mean, I think what, uh, when you actually ask the kids, you know, why did it happen? They would either say, well, I don't know. I just kind of forgot about them or they just sort of drifted away or I was distracted by something else. Or um, they decided that they didn't want to be made fun of at school or something. There's various theories as to why kids have imaginary companions to begin with. But the one I like is that we have a lot of needs throughout our lives. And as children, we have a lot of needs too. And we have needs for competence. We have a needs for independence. We have a need for interaction and, and, um, and to feel like people like us or would hang out with us. And so when we're alone and we don't have access to other kids, we'll, we'll just, we'll make up a friend. And, and if, if we really believe it and kids are, you know, able to have that kind of extreme creativity, it meets that need. As we age, the hope is, is that we learn how to meet those needs uh, through actual humans and seek out those people when we have those needs. Um, having said that, I know a lot of people of every age that are extremely lonely. <laughs> and 
so I wouldn't say that everyone who has imaginary companions graduates to seeing their needs to other people. I suspect that a lot of people get older and they just think, well, this is not normal for a 13 year old to have imaginary friends. So I have to move on from that. And then they proceed to just be alone. So, and another interesting fact in the research finding from the research is that it seems it's hard to know because it's not widely researched, but it seems as though Western cultures, including the United States are much more likely to have imaginary companions than other societies around the world. Japan seems to have uh, similar rates, but other countries don't. And my speculation on that is because our children, on average, are much more likely to spend time alone than children in other societies. You know, children who grow up in other societies, they live in small, you know, homes where the homes are right next to other homes and there's no Xbox and they spend a lot of time outside with other kids. And so, there's, uh, it seems to stand a reason, it's hard to know, but it seems to stand a reason that our children are left alone so often that they have to invent friends to hang out with. Now, when you mentioned uh, adults having imaginary companions, and as our audience does have interest, of course, in kind of the paranormal and the question, you know, are ghosts real, which is a question we certainly don't have an answer to, uh, but is there anything, if, if we do have adults out there who often see spirits or the same spirit over, uh, over and over again, or almost have a relationship with what they perceive to be a ghost, is there any psychological difference or a mental wellness difference there uh, between having, I guess, a, an imaginary companion versus what someone might label a spirit? Well, it depends on a lot of things. Uh, in my practice, I've certainly treated people who are psychotic and who are delusional or having hallucinations, which is unfortunate um, for them. And they will report various different breaks from reality, including seeing people and talking to people. So there's that. If someone were to not be suffering from schizophrenia or another psychotic disorder, and they reported that they saw a ghost. Another possibility is that um, their belief system is such that they believe in spirits. And part of that belief system leads to that being that they see people. You know, a common example might be that one's parents die for whatever reason, and you believe that your parents are in heaven and sometimes, in times of need, they come down and, and you might see them in a doorway or you might see them in a crowd and believe that, uh, you know, they're around, which is, um, I think, a beautiful thing. And my, my final question, just to circle back something you already mentioned, it was really surprising the amount of stories we got from parents who, as you mentioned, kind of report their their child's interactions with their imaginary friends being somewhat uh, frightening is probably too strong a word, uh, but eerie or a little bit unsettling for parents due to the child, you know, what the child says, how they say it, almost speaking in tongues or other voices 
or the imaginary friend seeming to know things that, that the child wouldn't. Uh, it sounds like what you're saying is for parents in that case, not to get too worried, not to get freaked out. This is all a natural part of the process. Absolutely. And I'm concerned that you have people that are worried about that because um, that uh, is a lot of suffering that the, the people are going through. I, you know, I wonder if uh, it's, a, you know, just part of the internet or something. Uh, I'm old enough, I don't know how old you are, but I'm old enough to remember when clowns were actually a wonderful thing. Here in the Seattle area, we had J.P. Patches, who was this beloved childhood TV show, uh, you know, star. You know, arguably he was like the most important person to Seattleite children in the 70s. And he was a clown, just a classic, sad clown with all the makeup and everything. And was loved him and going to rodeos and the clowns are, you know, in parades, the clowns are the best part. Now clowns are creepy and scary and, you know, John Gacy and all this kind of stuff. And I attribute that to uh, storytelling, uh, poltergeist being one of the first to kind of really make a clown terrifying. And then subsequent movies, it, uh, you know, Chucky or I don't know. Various different movies that uh, you know depict clowns as being essentially psychotic, sadistic killers, and that has morphed the idea of a clown over time to be a creepy thing. You get old enough, you start seeing these like weird sort of tide changes in society, and I think it's the same for imaginary companions, which I think again begins with Red Rum. I think prior to that imaginary companions were just like, you know, just fine. And, and the horror or the, or the, the freakitude of it, it was just not in our culture because, because people were in contact with it. You know, you're in contact with your kids having magic companions, you experience it. The vast majority of parents, when you ask them about their uh, kids, imaginary companions uh, report that uh, it's fine and there's, there's nothing wrong with it at all. But with the internet, with red rum, with other kinds of depictions, our fascination with horror movies or something, it just starts to insert this, this notion that other nefarious things, which, um, you know, I, I just, I just think is unfortunate. It creates a lot of suffering, a lot of worry. And again, shame for children. I mean, imagine, you know, one of the worst things you can do as a parent is be terrified of your child's normal development and, and to, you know, even say, uh, suggest that they have an evil spirit in them. I mean, I just can't imagine the, the damage that would do to a child. Okay, me again. Uh, that was the interview. Now let's listen to the actual broadcast. Again, this is condensed a little bit. I have permission from the producers to, to condense it in this way. So let's just listen to that. When young, many children have imaginary friends. These invisible entities are usually considered a normal part of growing up. But sometimes they seem like something else entirely, possibly even paranormal. In the episode, we will be sharing stories from our listeners about their unusual or unsettling encounters with imaginary friends and speaking to a psychologist to understand more about this unique phenomena. Before we share those stories, I thought it was important that we talk to an expert who could give us a clinical perspective on imaginary friends before we delve into the potentially 
Paranormal. My name is Dr. Kirk Honda, and I am host of the Psychology in Seattle podcast, and I'm also a therapist and a professor at Antioch University here in Seattle. About two-thirds to three-fourths of children have had an imaginary companion, and usually starts around the age of four because that's when children develop a theory of mind, which is the developmental phase in which humans develop this ability to really understand that um, other people have a mind. You know, it, it's, not a, it's not something we're born with through uh, age and through interaction with other people. This idea that, like, my feelings aren't your feelings and my thoughts aren't your thoughts. This notion of, like, oh, so you have this whole other perspective and emotional experience and, and it's sort of unknown to me. As they develop that notion of that separation, that's when they also begin to create imaginary companions. There are plenty of, of middle school-aged kids who have imaginary companions. It might seem wrong or pathological or something. It's not. Research has found that none of these things are associated with bad things. I mean, occasionally you'll have a kid who's psychotic and generally has psychopathology, but that's extremely rare. If anything, there's, there's a lot of good things that happen from these, according to the research. And I would have thought this before I looked at the research that, you know, kids with imaginary companions, they're probably more isolated. They're probably more shy. They keep to themselves. They're in their own world. But it's actually the opposite. Kids with imaginary companions tend to be less shy. They engage in more laughing with peers and more smiling with peers. They're better able to empathize with other people. There's really no evidence that having an, an imaginary companion leads to emotional difficulties. Some studies even show it suggests higher, higher intelligence, uh, more creative kids are likely to have an imaginary companion, or does the imaginary companion actually lead to higher intelligence and, and greater creativity and better, better emotional lives? It seems to me, and it, you know, if I had any advice to parents, is to revel and celebrate the fact that your kid has an imaginary companion. It's totally normal. It's nothing to worry about. Um, and might even, you know, give you a glimpse into your child's emotional life. You know, what the, the sort of interactions that they have with that imaginary companion might might tell you something about the emotional life. Now, I will say that there are very rare instances where these imaginary companions are not so great. Uh, about three percent, according to research, of imaginary companions were categorized as enemies, uh, meaning that they were frightening or mean in some way. So that does happen. And in those cases, of course, we want to try to help kids with that. So 3%, you know, that's something to, to mention, but extremely rare. I was surprised and somewhat jealous to hear that so many people, 60 to 75%, had imaginary childhood friends. Perhaps I had forgotten mine, but I knew an expert who could help me out. Hey, Mom, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. I have a uh, perhaps a, a weird question to ask you about our next podcast episode. Okay. So it's all about imaginary friends. And I don't recall having an imaginary friend at any point, but maybe I forgot. Do you remember if I ever had an imaginary friend? I do not remember you ever having an imaginary friend. You were very attached to a huggy blanket, which almost was like a person to you. As someone who did not have an imaginary friend or friends, it made me very curious 
what the experience is like. How do children perceive their imaginary friends? Is it a voice in their head? Or are they seeing something that no one else can see? Sometimes it is like a, an imaginary hologram or something. Other times it was, I could both kind of see them, but I actually would talk for them. Other times, like I said, it can be a stuffed animal. And so it is a real object. It's right in front of you, but the real object has thoughts and feelings and either communicates telepathically or actually opens their mouth. Another part of the phenomena I was eager to ask Dr. Honda about is what occurs in our psychological development that allows most of us to leave our imaginary friends behind as we get older. It's a good question. It's unknown um, as to why. It's hard. It would be a hard thing to study. I mean, I think what uh, when you actually ask the kids, you know, why did it happen? They would either say, well, I don't know. I just kind of forgot about them or they just sort of drifted away or I was distracted by something else. Or they decided that they didn't want to be made fun of at school or something. There's various theories as to why kids have imaginary companions to begin with. But the one I like is that we have a lot of needs throughout our lives. And as children, we have a lot of needs too. And we have needs for competence. We have a needs for independence. We have a need for interaction and, and, um, and to feel like people like us or would hang out with us. And so when we're alone and we don't have access to other kids, we'll, we'll just, we'll make up a friend. And, and if, if we really believe it and kids are, you know, able to have that kind of extreme creativity, it meets that needs. As we age, the hope is, is that we learn how to meet those needs uh, through actual humans and seek out those people when we have those needs. Having said that, I know a lot of people of every age that are extremely lonely. So I wouldn't say that everyone who has imaginary companions graduates seeing their needs to other people. I suspect that a lot of people get older and they just think, well, this is not normal for a 13-year-old to have imaginary friends, so I have to move on from that. And then they proceed to just be alone. So, And another interesting fact in the research, finding from the research, is that it seems, it's hard to know because it's not widely researched, but it seems as though Western cultures, including the United States, are much more likely to have imaginary companions than other societies around the world. Japan seems to have uh, similar rates, but other countries don't. And my speculation on that is because our children, on average, are much more likely to spend time alone than children in other societies. You know, children who grow up in other societies, they live in small, you know, homes where the homes are right next to other homes and there's no Xbox, and they spend a lot of time outside with other kids. And so it seems to stand to reason, it's hard to know, but it seems to stand to reason that our children are left alone so often that they have to invent friends to hang out with. This seems a good time to share some stories from our listeners. Setting aside the more common types of interactions between children and their imaginary playmates, the potentially paranormal ones seem to fall into two broad categories. The eerie and the sinister. The eerie examples we received have to do with 
children knowing surprising things about the past, present, or even the future, things that no one had told them and seemed very unlikely they would know on their own, things that often only come to be many years later. Or those examples of children seeing or hearing things that aren't necessarily sinister or scary or dark, but are unusual. The sinister examples, on the other hand, tend to be much darker. Where, as Dr. Honda said, the imaginary friend seems to be an enemy to the child, the parent, or to both. If you believe in the possibility of the paranormal or the supernatural, a disturbing question you have to consider is how would you really know if your three- or four-year-old is playing with a regular, self-created, imaginary companion or something else entirely different? Dr. Honda believes there is another explanation for these ominous imaginary friends. I'm old enough, I don't know how old you are, but I'm old enough to remember when clowns were actually a wonderful thing. Here in the Seattle area, we had J.P. Patches, who was this beloved childhood TV show you know, star. Arguably, he was like the most important person to Seattleite children in the 70s. And he was a clown, just a classic, sad clown with all the makeup and everything. And was loved him and going to rodeos and the clowns are, you know, in parades, the clowns are the best part. Now clowns are creepy and scary and, you know, John Gacy and all this kind of stuff. And I attribute that to uh, storytelling, uh, poltergeist being one of the first to kind of really make a clown terrifying. And then subsequent movies, it various different movies that depict clowns as being essentially psychotic, sadistic killers. And that has morphed the idea of a clown over time to be a creepy thing. You get old enough, you start seeing these like weird sort of tide changes in society. And I think it's the same for imaginary companions, which I think, again, begins with red rum. I think prior to that, imaginary companions were just like, you know, just fine. And, and the horror or the, or the, the freakitude of it, it was just not in our culture because People were in contact with it. You know, you're in contact with your kids having magic companions. You experience it. The vast majority of parents, when you ask them about their kids' magic companions, uh, report that uh, it's fine and there's there's nothing wrong with it at all. But with the internet, with red rum, with other kinds of depictions, our fascination with horror movies or something, it just starts to insert this this notion that other nefarious things, which um, you know, I. I just think is unfortunate. It creates a lot of suffering, a lot of worry. And again, shame for children. I mean, imagine, you know, one of the worst things you can do as a parent is be terrified of your child's normal development and, and to, you know, even say, suggest that they have an evil spirit in them. I mean, I just can't imagine the, the damage that would do to a child. All right. So there you go. I hope that was entertaining on some level. I just want to say again, I don't know if I stated this well earlier, I'm a scientist and I look at data and I don't need supernatural explanations to explain observed phenomenon. 
I don't mind people believing in supernatural things, but we don't want to confuse the two. And we also want to make sure that we're not giving in to our uh, sort of tendency to invent supernatural ideas, uh, especially when it might harm other people, you know, and an extreme example, if you believed that God hated black people, for example, then that supernatural belief is, is something that I think we can all condemn. Uh, believing that your grandmother is watching over you is a supernatural belief and doesn't harm anyone in all likelihood. So there are distinctions. And I think that a supernatural belief that children are, uh, you know, potentially possessed or are seeing ghosts and ghouls when they have imaginary friends, I do believe that to be harmful. I, I absolutely believe that to be a harmful idea. Kids and parents are up against enough barriers. We don't want to add additional ones. You know, like I said, we want to look at science. When the Earth goes around the sun, we don't need to discuss ghosts and ghouls as an explanation as to why the Earth is going around the sun. We have gravity. We have relativity. We have, you know, all those things. And when we discuss things in the natural world, such as human behavior and imaginary friends, to be specific, we also don't need ghosts and ghouls to explain that. So I just want to get that off my chest. So on Facebook, in preparation for this episode, I asked all of you what your experiences were with your imaginary friends. And so here are some of your uh, responses. Jackie said, my now 10-year-old son, Julian, had Jay, his alter ego of sorts, probably to the age of six. He wrote all about him, Jay's world, in, a, in picture-only comics. That's interesting. Kimmy says, I never had imaginary friends or gave my toys any personalities. I always feel a bit odd about it, but neither did my twin. And I wonder if it's because we just had everything we needed in each other. Well, Kimmy, that is my speculation, as I talked about earlier, is that when kids are left alone, they invent friends. And when they're um, not alone, they don't have the space or the need to invent friends. Top fan Hallie says, um, I was also an only child growing up and had a stuffed rabbit named Buns with a music box. <laughs> Still have him. I'm not sure I remember there being a personality, but he was definitely a security blanket of sorts. Uh, Buns, that's fun. <laughs> uh, top fan Junie writes, Ah, the memories. My favorite stuffed toy was a small blue dog called Huggy. <laughs> That's great. Top fan Nicole says, I have stuffed animals. I still have stuffed animals, and I'm 35. I know I did have imaginary friends, but I was so young when I stopped, I don't remember what age I was. Though I do remember having vivid dreams about my stuffed elephant trying to kill me with a kitchen knife around that same time. That is interesting. Because for me, one of the most disturbing me memories I have as a child was with my stuffed elephant. It was like a rainbow elephant. And it was like the big, I had like four or five stuffed animals and the elephant was the biggest one. And it, and it had a pouch like a kangaroo. <laughs> but I remember one night I was, at, you know, in the darkness before going to bed, I would have all these conversations with my stuffed animals. I was probably like three years old. And I remember something really terrible happening between me and the, and the elephant. And to this day, I can get chills thinking about the uh, energy. In my mind, what happened was 
this kind of lightning bolt of emotion connecting me and the elephant was a hundred percent negative. That is a very strange sentence I just said, but that's the only way I can put it into words. There was there was a lightning bolt that I imagined or saw. It was eternally deep negative emotion. It was sort of like guilt or something or evilness, but it wasn't that my, you know, the, I wasn't, it wasn't that my elephant was evil. It was that something terrible had happened between the two of us. And either I had lost trust in humanity or I'd lost trust in myself or something. It was pretty deep. I remember. And I, you know, I think I woke up the next day and was fine, but, um, it, I remember it to this day, and I, I remember remembering it when I was six, seven, eight, nine years old, and and also being kind of you know not freaked out about it, but just kind of it was a notable memory. So Nicole, I too had a nefarious moment with with a uh, a elephant. Having said that, the elephant, you know, all the other times was was a friend, it was a good guy. <laughs> Janelle wrote, "I had a white teddy bear growing up. I talked to it and imagined it having a personality." Until I was about a 13-year-old person. <laughs> it was my protector from my father. Well, that's interesting. When he would come downstairs. Ooh, uh, okay. Well, let's see. Da, da, da. So his father was scary, and the teddy bear helped her with that. So, you know, that makes sense to me. Uh, research shows that that's one of the reasons why we have imaginary friends as, a, as protectors. Manuel says, my imaginary friend was Q from Star Trek. So <laughs> if you're a Next Generation fan, you know who Q is. If you're not, Q was this alien that essentially was like God. Uh, the Star Trek crew would very occasionally run into this alien that could do anything. He, when he snap of his fingers, he could wipe out, he could kill every human, he could kill every living thing in the universe if he wanted to. I don't know if his powers went that far, but it certainly seemed that way to the Star Trek crew. So this is hilarious that your imaginary friend was literally Q from Star Trek. And, and Q was a very cheeky, uh, kind of like a troll, an immature too. He He liked messing with people because he was insecure and narcissist, like a bully. He was like a bully. I remember writing diary entries specifically to him when I was about 12 to 14. The reason was mostly to escape from a life of social anxiety and bullying. Since he is omnipotent, I suppose I was hoping for him to somehow be able to change my life for the better or bring those to justice who tortured me for no reason other than being the awkward, quiet kid. Will Manuela, Manuela, I think I pronounced your name wrong before, that breaks my heart. And as a Star Trek -er, fellow Trekkie, I, um, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I feel somewhat good that Q was there for you to provide you with hope, but um breaks my heart that you were going through that terrible time. That's awful. Natasha wrote, I had a conversation about this with a friend the other day and told him I never had one because my family was very religious and the Mormon version of God is super loving, warm, and fuzzy. And as, and as a child, I think that took place of an imaginary friend for me. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Patrick said, had an imaginary friend in the first grade. Don't remember when exactly he came into my life or when he left, but I, but I know I didn't have one in kindergarten or in the second grade. His name was either Stephen or Luke, <laughs> and he was slightly older than me. Uh, I think... 
I think a lot of my peers kind of bored me. That's interesting. Top fan Rachel writes, my imaginary friend as a kid was a very small elf with a super pointy hat. He kept me company and cheered me on when I was learning how to roller skate. (laughs) My mom told me I should stop imagining friends. So I came up with a tragic yet poetic scenario of killing him off. LOL. Um, Interesting. Debbie, my, how did Rachel, how did you kill him off? Was it a roller skating accident? Debbie, my daughter is 19 and has a fleece pink blanket from when she was a newborn. She refers to the blanket as her. It's the name. It's, its name is Bonnie, LOL. When she was around 10, she got a pink fleece scarf and named it Baby Bonnie. <laughs> Top fan Bronwyn says, There was a small stuffed donkey left in my parents' business when I was about 10, and every time I was there, I'd take it out back and play with it called him pokey due to his long nose i asked dad can i have him he said wait a week and if the owner does oh i don't see the rest of it but i will you have to go to facebook to read the rest of that comment top fan tasha i had an imaginary friend from another dimensional world when i was a kid i gave him a name that sounded weird outside of my head (laughs) that's interesting so you gave him a name that sounded weird outside your head. So it was like the name only existed at its best or in its best or real form inside your head. I could see that. Amy, my friend from grad school, she says, I think that they gave me a way. I think, I think that they gave me a way to act out stories. So talking about imaginary friends, I think that they gave me a way to act out stories I made up or to try different personalities or ways of relating. There were no kids in my neighborhood, and my siblings were 12-plus years older, so it was also companionship. Most of my imaginary friends were cartoon characters that I imagined being with me, but some were my own creation. It reminds me of, um, for me, uh, uh, there's sort of a a well-told, repeated story in my family that I came downstairs one time and asked my mom for four cookies— I said, Mom, can I have four cookies? And my mom said, uh, why do you need four? And I said, well, I need one for me and then three for my friends, you know, Gigi, Jeff, and Jamie. <laughs> Gigi, Jeff, and Jamie, <laughs> very alliterative. And my mom laughed and said, oh, no, 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 you just get one cookie. And I said, well, what about my friends? And my mom said, well, you're just going to have to share it. And I was like, oh, okay. So I shared the cookie. And to this day, my family is convinced that it was my way of trying to finagle four cookies. But if you might have listened to previous episodes, I was an extremely uh, guileless child and didn't know how to think about tricking people. And uh, that was not the case. I literally believed that uh, I had three friends and if I got a cookie, then they needed one. I don't know what I would have done with the four cookies. Uh, I... So maybe my mom saved me from realizing that they weren't real. But anyway, Um, top fan Marie writes, I had some friends and we imagined we had pets who could communicate with, who we could communicate with and who could do stuff for us in our adventures. Mine was a bird. It was free and could get anywhere I wanted it to fetch and deliver things. Uh, That sounds fun. Tammy says... I'm an only child, 
And as a kid, I really wanted a sister, so I made one up. Her name was Mona Lisa, and she was around a lot when I was five or six. Uh, that's funny. If you're was wasn't um, Raphael on on Parks and Rec, his sister named Mona Lisa. That would be a terrible friend to have. Danny says, imaginary friends were a pretty social phenomenon at my school. We would design imaginary friends and for one another and play pretend during recess. Sort of forgot them when I wasn't at school, though. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I did that, too. In first grade, I had a friend, Julie Brown, who we were really good friends. And we had erasers. You know, you always there's a lot of pencils and erasers when you're a kid. And we had these little erasers, the kind of erasers you would put on a pencil, you know. You would put it on the tip of a pencil. Remember how much you needed erasers when you were a kid? Anyway, well, we had a whole box full of these erasers, probably like, you know, a dozen of them. And so we, we made, we put faces on them. And then we would imagine that they were this little family. And we would pretend all recess long, the two of us, me and Julie Brown, pretending about these little um you know, friends interacting. And it's funny because in my mind, it's this very formative memory, but it literally could have been just like two days of recess that we did it. Uh, Because I know we didn't do it a lot, but but it could have been like six months that we did it. I I don't know. Rachel says, my brother had an imaginary frame named Eggery, not Gregory, but Eggery, from the time he was three until he was eight. He doesn't have him now, but we always joke and suspect that the reason he had an imaginary friend is because I didn't really talk to him much when he was younger. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's a theme in, in, in what we're seeing here. Top fan Daniela never had either. I don't know why. I was never attached to items like that. Alyssa, student, my student Alyssa, as an only child with a heavy introvertive side, I spent my childhood deep in imaginary lands with my toys on wonderful adventures I crafted. I had numerous favorite stuffed animals, including a bear named Mistletoe. Um, interesting. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, so research seems to show that it's related not only to being alone as a child, but also to having uh, creativity. Joel says, my sibling and I had a lot of stuffed animals. We'd act out stories with them, gave some of them superpowers to fight the villains in the stories. This is kind of like a toy story sounding in some ways. Alexis, good old Alexis, was I was obsessed with role playing before I even knew what it was. It became toxic and my characters end up becoming dissociative identities. Oh, they were sort of alter egos of yours. Yeah, I mean, actually... So that was for me, too. Um, when I was uh, uh, the, the way that my imaginary friends manifested was through me. I didn't I didn't um, imagine them being outside of me. But I also and I imagine them being kind of small, like maybe just like a foot tall. But when they talked, I would talk and like the voices were different, like with Jeff he had an overbite. And so when I talked, I would, I would put my teeth over, you know, I, hi, I'm Jeff. And then, uh, one of them did an underbite and one of them had like a high, I think Jamie had like a high voice or something. And in a way they were like, they were like dissociative identities, but not in the clinical sense. I I think it was just, um, the way that my imaginary friends manifested. So that's, I can relate to that, Alexis. Emily says, 
Toad was my friend. He was actually a character from a kid's comic here in the UK called Play Hour. His particular series was Todd or Toad of the Toad Hall. He was a life-size creature, and when and we were always together. <laughs> interesting. So thanks for sharing on Facebook, everyone. That's interesting. Okay. I just want to go through my notes and see if there's anything more that uh, I didn't get to in this episode. So if I, if I haven't mentioned this already, you might hear me using the term imaginary companion because that's the phrase, that's the term we use in the research literature. Imaginary companions can include imaginary friends, but they can also include stuffed animals that have personalities that we interact with. So they want in the research literature mostly to include all those examples, which it's interesting that we, you know, uh, differentiate between this two. I, I don't know if everyone kind of sees it this way, but until prepping for this episode, I kind of thought of stuffed animals as being very normal and very almost like every kid has stuffed animals that they interact with. But only some kids have imaginary friends, like the way I had Jeff, Gigi, and Jamie, who weren't uh, uh, stuffed animals. They were actually just other humans that I imagined. Uh, it's, it's interesting that we delineate between the two, but of course, they're very similar, right? You, you have, uh, you're, you're, in both instances, you're imagining a personality in, outside of you and interacting with it. Uh, I looked in the literature for the history of imaginary companions. There's not a lot that we can find in the written and historical uh, accounts, but we certainly can look around in history and in current cultures, the anthropological phenomenon as it differs across cultures. Like in Japan, um, as a Japanese person, I've paid a little bit of attention to Japanese culture and Anime and Pokemon actually kind of ex expresses this. In Japan, they have, uh, I can't remember the term, but there's sort of a, everything's alive and everything has spirits. So like the, a, there's, there's a, if there's a rock, it has a spirit. If there's a mountain, it has a spirit. If, if there's a fox, then there's a fox spirit. And, and there's, there's, there's a lot, there's, things are alive. Shintoism has a lot of that in it from what I understand. And so, it seems kind of related to imaginary companions that um, adults kind of believed in, in a sense. Greek myths, you have fairies and nymphs and all that kind of stuff, good spirits, bad spirits. It was researched uh, starting in the 1800s, similar to a lot of psychological phenomenon. Piaget commented on it in 1962. He was a developmental psychologist. We did a whole deep dive on, on Jean Piaget. And uh, it's hard to summarize the way he saw it because he didn't write about it that much, but he basically saw it as a problem. Uh, he saw imaginary companions, imaginary friends as uh, not something that you needed to eliminate, but sort of an indication of isolation or an indication of disturbance, um, from what I understand, which is not the general consensus of today. A few studies have found that oldest children and only children are the most likely to create an imaginary companion. So this might not seem to make any sense, but um, f when you look at it a little more closely, oldest children for a time are only children, right? So, uh, you know, the first child is born and then two years later, the next sibling is born. And so for two years, the oldest child is an only child. So when it's in this it stands to or it supports the speculation that when children are alone 
and they have a need for companionship, they, their creativity will kick in and just imagine one. So oldest children and only children are more likely to have imaginary companions. Now, there are a lot of other factors, right? If you're an only child, but you spend a lot of time with your cousins or your parents or you know, other kids in the neighborhood or something, then you're going to um, not have as many, as many imaginary friends. And actually, when I think about my own life, up until the time, I prob- my, my imaginary friends were pretty prolific up until the time that I started actually hanging out with a lot of other kids. Preschool hung out. Lita, if you remember her, original co-host of the podcast, she was in preschool with me. And then, of course, kindergarten and and beyond. But I had uh, very close neighborhood friends. There were probably like a dozen kids that were very close to my age in my neighborhood. But there were three boys that were that there were three houses in a row in my neighborhood and uh, there were two brothers and me and then this other boy. And the four of us were best, best friends. And we did everything together all the time. And I wonder if them being in my life basically made it so I didn't need imaginary friends anymore, which is kind of interesting to think about. Also, uh, another study found that children who don't watch much television tend to have a greater likelihood of having an imaginary companion. So that's interesting too, right? Again, a speculation, not only if you're alone, but also if you don't have anything to entertain you. So if if you're alone, but you have a video game or a television show to entertain you, then you don't need imaginary friends to entertain you or to get your needs met, that kind of thing. And if you think about it, it must be maybe even an evolutionary thing, maybe hard to know, but definitely quite a functional uh, little quirk that children have. They're alone. They have needs for interaction. They have needs for uh, competence and fun and to- togetherness and self-esteem. And so they, they just invent these creatures or they put personalities in their stuffed animals and have these adventures and have these really good times. And, uh, you know, what a wonderful thing. You know, if you saw a five-year-old with their two best friends having a great time playing, you know, a little game of baseball together, that would warm your heart. And if a kid is alone and they're playing with their stuffed animals in the same way, uh, that should also warm our hearts. Right? It's, it's a wonderful way that kids find using their creativity to just have a blast and, and to be accepted and to build their self-esteem. You know, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, function that kids have available to them. Along these lines, research have found that imaginary companions are associated with be- with better coping strategies, but you know, in children, and I think in adult, in adults too, if I remember the the research right. So, just having imaginary companions as a child means that you're more likely to have better coping strategies in life, and you have to wonder why. Is it, you know, causation correlation hard to know, but speculation. You have, or I'll just talk about me. I had imaginary friends that I worked out a lot of stuff with. And I, if I didn't have those imaginary friends, I would have been bored. I would have felt alone and rejected and, uh, you know, sad maybe. But I had these three imaginary friends that um, we did all these things together. And, and I was kind of the ringleader, if I remember right. And that gave me self-esteem. And 
So, uh, and maybe my imaginary friends had different ideas about how to cope with situations. I don't know. And so that could help me to develop better ways of dealing with emotions and with social situations. You know, it kind of makes sense. Uh, another study, Benson and Pryor uh, and Hoff in two, 2005, uh, these two studies found that they helped children, uh, imaginary companions help children to, to manage anxiety, stress, and social difficulties. So it's interesting, you know, that having imaginary companions on average is actually a good thing for kids. So I'm not a weirdo for having three imaginary friends growing up named Jeff, Gigi, and Jamie. (laughs) Also, getting back to some of the history in the psychoanalytic world, Donald Winnicott in 1971 wrote about imaginary companions and said that they're normal and that they can be considered transitional objects, meaning that as we are separated from the uh, very close comfort of our parents when we're an infant and we're age three, four, five, we need a transitional object object to kind of carry us into the next phase of life where we don't have our parents around all the time. Um, and that these transitional imaginary companion objects enable us to cope with frustrations and develop a sense of self. Um, and at the time, the consensus seemed to agree with Winnicott in the psychoanalytic world. Uh, you know, the Piaget point of view was that it was a sign of something that, you know, wasn't so great. Uh, so there, you know, there's some different points of view, but in the psychoanalytic world anyway, it seemed to, they seem to agree with Winnicott from what I understand. Regarding gender differences, there's not really much in the way of gender differences, according to research by Carlson and Taylor, 2005. Uh, but there, uh, in terms of rates of imaginary companions, but there seems to be a slightly uh, greater likelihood that girls will create imaginary companions, whereas boys are more likely to impersonate characters, if that makes any sense. But on the average, uh, it's it's hard to draw any kind of conclusion about gender. Um, when parents were asked, according to research why their children had the uh, imaginary companion. 21% said that the imaginary companion provided a playmate for their child. 38% said that the imaginary companion provided a need for a relationship. It's kind of the same thing. So 21%, yeah, they need a playmate. And 38% says, well, I think they need a relationship. That's why they created the imaginary companion. Uh, 29% said it was due to birth order. Probably like, well, he's a middle child and everyone ignores him. And so that's why he created a, a um, imaginary companion. And another 29% said that changes in the family led to the imaginary companion, maybe divorce or an, another child entering the family or something. Uh, Mano Savitz et al. Uh, study found that 62% of parents said that the imaginary companion was good for the child. did not think there was any effect on the child, and 4% felt that the imaginary companion had a harmful effect. It's hard to know what they were referring to when they were saying it was a harmful effect. Um, I could imagine situations where they thought the child might be holding them back from interacting with other kids, or the child would say things like, you know, my imaginary companion scared me. I want to put him in the closet now or something like that. It's hard to know. Maybe you have stories. If you have some, share them. Share them below. Comment, blah, blah, blah. All right. So to conclude, 
maybe just to provide advice to parents, as you probably know, it's normal to have an imaginary companion. Don't worry about it. Don't laugh at it. You can even value their imaginary companions. If you want to play along, good. You know, you might want to invite the imaginary companion into the family. As I said in the interview, you might learn a lot about your child's inner life and their emotional life and their needs uh, through their interaction with their imaginary companion. But, you know, if you don't want to interact with their imaginary companion or your kid doesn't let you, then don't worry about that either. Having said that, there are rare instances, say, you know, 3% of the time, where the imaginary companion seems to be kind of an antagonist to the child. And in those instances, you want to help the child navigate that relationship somehow, either by telling them, well, maybe it's time you stand up to JoJo, or maybe it's time that you uh, put JoJo away, or you know JoJo isn't real, and if you just say JoJo isn't real, then, that, you know, I don't know how to navigate that. It seems like kind of a hard thing to figure out, generally speaking. But but there's probably ways you can help the kids in the rare instances where the imaginary companion presents some kind of a problem. Okay, so what about you, the people who didn't chime in on Facebook? What about your experiences? Comment below or email me. If you want to contact me direct, directly, go to the website, fill out the Contact Us page. That's the best way to contact me. And please take care of yourself and love your imaginary companions. And I know I will, Jeff, Gigi, and Jamie, because we all deserve it, even our imaginary friends. We all deserve to take care of ourselves, right? 